I'm Jody Nisnik, and you're listening to So Much More. In John 16, 12, Jesus stated, there is so much more I want to tell you. He then pointed to the spirit as the one who would come, who would further his teaching by bringing his word to life for us. So much more creates space for God to reveal his truth through his word. Well, today I'm excited to have Amanda Hope Haley with me as we have a conversation around Exodus 14 and what the Lord is teaching her. Amanda, who is also known as the red-haired archaeologist, studied biblical archaeology at Harvard, and she is passionate about helping people understand the intersection of archaeology and the Bible. She's also the author of a number of books, including The Red-Haired Archaeologist Digs Israel. And I am super excited to have you on the podcast today, Amanda. So thanks for making some space for us. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. Well, um, before we dive in, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and maybe how you even got into the field of archaeology. Well, it like so many things in my life, it, it was an accident. It wasn't a plan. When I was in undergrad, I went to a place called Rhodes College. It's Presbyterian school. And I had every intention of going into international law, but you're required to take a few religion courses there. It's a liberal arts school and they're Presbyterian. And I took my first class in biblical archaeology and I just fell in love. And I had professors who were really encouraging and you know, they suggested maybe I could go to Harvard for my master's and wrote me recommendations. And I just, I had great people around me who encouraged me and sent, sent me up North. And, um, they are two great professors. Um, my advisor was a man named Larry Steger. I did all my, uh, digging work while I was there at a place called Ashkelon, which is one of the five, um, capital cities of the Philistine nation. It's right on the Mediterranean. It's absolutely beautiful. And, um, after grad school, I ended up moving back to Tennessee and going and doing some work with Thomas Nelson. Um, for seven years, I was part of the voice Bible translation. And um, I actually did translation for several books of the Bible. Then I ended up kind of staying on with the project and doing commentary writing and all of that. And so at that point, my love of scripture itself and my love of archaeology really sort of came together mm-hmm. because I, you know, when you're going through and you're doing a translation, you're looking at the Bible and you're really, you know, having to dive into what does this one strange, obscure word mean? Sometimes archaeology can help a illuminate that. And Mm -hmm. so for me, I found just this perfect marriage of, of, you know, explaining the Bible and the text and how it develops to people and using archaeology to, to bring that to life, to show people images, to make it a lot of fun. Um, So that that's my heart. That's my passion. That's what I try to do now. Yeah. I love that. And we'll talk a little bit more at the end about ways that you can follow along with what Amanda's doing, because she really does bring the Bible to life. And I love following oh, your Instagram because you. every time I'm like, what? I had no idea that was true. Or <laughs> I learned a new thing. So 
so um, glad. I try to just do factoids. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's really great. So, Thanks. well, I, before we dive in, I do want to do a quick reminder for us of the passage. I went into context in the meditation, so I'm not going to do that here. But this is the iconic passage in Moses's journey and the Israelites' journey, where there is the parting of the Red Sea. So let me read that for us now. And I do want to make a note that I took a few verses out of the middle of the passage just because they didn't really further the story that we're studying and also trying to keep this uh, into a bite-sized chunk for us to do a meditation on is hard. So, um, but this is Exodus 14 verses 10 through 15 and then verses 21 through 22. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. So it's an epic story and an epic journey. (laughs) Um, And we did this as Electio Divina, really inviting the Lord to help us notice something in the passage specifically. So let's start there. Amanda, where did the Lord take you in this passage? I I first want to say this is the first time I've ever done this practice, and I really love it um, for a couple of reasons. One, it there's something about reading it slowly and deliberatively and deli- deliberately and with prayer mm-hmm. um, that you, you see something new every time you go through it. And that's also, if you're ever studying the Bible exegetically, that's something that you want to do is read something over and over again, because things come to the surface, but doing it this way for me, for someone who's kind of a history head, uh, when I read the Bible, I'm really tempted to drill in on all the context stuff. Mm -hmm. But doing it this way, I noticed something here that I've never really noticed before. And that's the tone of how everybody is speaking. Mm. And um, in a way, the way the Israelites are talking to Moses sort of reminds me of Jonah. And Jonah is is a funny guy. Um, (laughs) He's got a lot of sass in him, as we would say down in the South. And when I'm reading what the, what the Israelites are saying to Moses, I'm getting sass and it's Mm -hmm. not something I've forgotten before. They could have just 
complained to him. They could have just said, you know, oh, we're really scared. Why did you do this? But they they pull up this image of of graves and then they they prolong that and they last, you know, they stretch it all the way out to the end. And because of the words that are used, because of what's really just really good writing there, you get, you understand the intensity of what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how it's almost maybe like when, um, when you're driving down the interstate, maybe going a little bit fast, you pass a state trooper and, you know, you look at like, Oh no, I've been speeding. And you look in your rear view mirror and okay, he's not coming after me. I'm safe. Okay. And it's like for the Israelites, just a few verses before they had the Egyptians in the rear view mirror. They were out, they were done. They were celebrating. But then like when you're in the car, you get a mile ahead and oop, there's another state trooper. And he does come after you because the two were working in tandem. <laughs> and it's like the Israelites have been, yes, yes. Rear view mirror. It's done. And then, Oh no, there they are. They are coming after. And so they've been on this high and low high. And so you can feel that intensity in what they say, but then the way Moses responds, he is the adult in the room and he's like, <laughs> okay, everybody calm down. I hear you, but you know, we all, we, you, what you have to do, you have to be still. God has got this mm-hmm. calm down. You need to be still. And I'm a person who has trouble being still, which again is why I like the elective divina process. Um, it, it, I, I need more of that in my life. And so his response is, okay, everybody calm down. But then immediately after that, the text doesn't tell us what Moses is praying to God, but based on God's response, you know that something happened there, Mm -hmm. but God isn't what God says is actually the exact opposite. God doesn't say, yes, y'all be still. I've got this. He actually goes the other way. And he's like, Hey, what are you people doing? Stop staying around chatting and get moving, (laughs) pick up those tents and get moving. And so what God says is actually the opposite of the way that Moses has just counseled all of these people. And so that's something I hadn't noticed before. It's just the tone and the way it's written and, and all of the words that are used by that, just the number of words that are used by the Israelites compared to just the few from God, which are basically get up and go. That's it. (laughs) And so I, I don't know. I love that. And I'm not even sure exact. I, I, I took something out of it at the point of Moses saying, be still, I needed to hear that. But then I was immediately kind of backhanded with the God saying, no, no, you need to get up. You need to move. You need to go. And so I guess for us and, you know, for me in my busy life, there needs to be a balance of those things. Obviously Mm -hmm. we need to be trusting God. And of course, what happens next is God does everything Moses said, you know, he moves the column of fire, you know, the, the the angel is taking care of them. Like everything is fine, but that, that interplay is something that I had never really noticed before. Yeah. I love even the juxtaposition of how few words God speaks and how many words they speak. Yes. Um, And how many I I just used, sorry. No, no, it was great. I think, but that, I think that that's true of us, right? I think we can blather on a lot to God instead of listening and being still even being attentive to what he's doing. Mm -hmm. The other thing, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about with this passage is I, I, I resonate with the people, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they have been in this brutal slavery 
and they've finally been released and then they see them coming after them. And it's almost like PTSD. Yeah. I mean, you know, or, or even what, what is it? Stockholm syndrome where you're, where the captor, they, they have some sort of affinity toward these captors because, well, I mean, that's the only life we've known. Yeah. And years. Yeah. yeah, right. And so here we are now. And I think they also over-exaggerate a little bit because I've looked in scripture and I don't see where they said, didn't we tell you it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians yeah. now? They, they may will have say said it that again to, later. Uh, they will. <laughs> and they may have said that to him and we just don't have it recorded. Yeah. But um, yeah, so all of those things are really interesting. Um, and I do love that there is a time for stillness and there is a time for movement, which is exactly yeah. what you've just said. So yeah. uh, tell me a little bit more than about the next step you took with the Lord as, as you're hearing this, be still move on <laughs> kind of juxtaposition. Where do you go with the Lord personally in your life right now? Oh, <laughs> as, as I said, I'm, I'm trying to find that balance between the be still and move on. Um, and I'm, I, that's it. I I'm just, I'm in the middle. I have this need for more of God's quiet presence in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to, I guess, maybe be a little bit more like a duck, you know, working really hard with my little feet under the water, but, you know, having the peace of, you know, gliding along and, and being in his presence. Um, that's, that's just something he, I, he, and I talk about a lot. That's something mm-hmm. that I see him, mm-hmm. you know, impressing upon me. And um, I, I, I think a lot of that is, is trust and just trusting that God has this, that he, um, you know, he's got a plan and I don't know what it is yet, but I trust that it is. And, um, it's just my goal throughout the day to be walking in lockstep with the Holy spirit and hopefully just, just following along, not knowing what the goal is in, in in this context, not knowing what the promised land looks like, not knowing how God is going to get me from between the rock of the Egyptian army and the hard place of the sea. Um, and, and just, just finding, finding that truth and that balance between moving forward. Um, but, but in a, in a peaceful and trusting way. Yeah. That's what I kept thinking when you were talking about the duck is a great analogy or (laughs) illustration of that, that there is actually movement that is done with a still heart. Yes. Um, there's, there is us moving forward in that place of dependence. Um, I don't think they're either or right. I mean, there is a place for actual physical stillness too. And, and God telling us it's not time, it's not time. And then there's a time for yes, move it's time. But I'm also, as you said that I thought, yeah, but wonder if they're also the same thing a lot of times. And even Moses saying to them, stand firm, you're going to see the deliverance the Lord's going to bring you. If that standing firm is really even just remember people, remember, yeah. do you not remember what you have just seen your God do? Yeah. He has, he has done extraordinary miracles in your sight with all yeah. of these plagues that happened um, and treacherous ones too. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were difficult things that happened. Yeah. Evil. But, yes. <laughs> yeah. But did Wicked. you not see, did you not yeah. see? I am God. And do you think I brought you this far to let the army come and just take you out? You know, another interesting fact that I just noticed about this is the army is about 600 chariots. So I don't know how many people are on a chariot. Um, 
but let's just say one to two. Yeah. The Israelites are 600,000 men plus women and children, which we estimate to be around 2 million people, but 600 to 600,000 is one to a hundred. No, 10,000, one to a hundred thousand. I don't know. It's a lot. <laughs> yes. Yes. My yes. math broke down there, but it's a lot. It's, it's a tiny, teeny bit yes. to a huge number. Mm-hmm. And they see that little 600, that little speck of dust and yeah. it makes them Terrifying. afraid. And I think, doesn't that, isn't that what we do? Like we see something and we like extrapolate it into this, the huge worst case scenario. Oh my gosh, now I'm going to die. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And I mean, God, God also has a tendency in Exodus and as, as in life today to, to do things in an unexpected way. He doesn't do things the way we humans would do things. Um, And like, with with the parting of the Red Sea, one thing that I noticed when I was reading it this time is that he took all night to part mm-hmm. the Red Sea. And I think whenever I talk about Exodus, especially if I'm talking about the golden calf, I tend to bring up Cecil B. DeMille's film, The Ten Commandments. Because for me, when I read Exodus, I cannot help it. I picture Yul Brenner. I, you know, I picture Charleston Heston, like all of that. That's what I see, even though so much of that movie is historically and scripturally inaccurate. (laughs) But because of that movie and because of the, uh, the amazing for the time effects and the walls coming up, the walls of water, that's what you picture. And in reading that, I had missed in the past that he took an entire night to do it. Right. And so he made them wait and watch the army coming. And even though he had moved the column of, of smoke and fire, you know, back behind them to protect them, there was, he made them wait the whole night. And I mean, this is our God. And I'm sure the Israelites would have preferred for him just to snap his fingers and make it happen. But he chose to do it with wind. And he chose to take all night so that the ground had the time to dry out when, you know, he could have just done that himself, but Mm. that that's what he does a lot through, through Exodus with the plagues and everything. He does things in natural ways, but, but from supernatural, like he doesn't supernaturally, but using natural what's already on earth, what he already created. Okay. And Um, isn't that what he does in our lives when he starts moving and when we see his miracles, they are things that we can reason away. We can rationalize because yeah. they are normal things done in an extraordinary way. Yeah. And I yeah. love that you just brought that up because I think, oh my gosh, I do that all the time. Oh, yeah. I'm praying for something. And then God metaphorically parts the Red Sea for me. Yeah. And I'm like, huh, look at that circumstance. Isn't that interesting that that happened instead yeah. of saying, Thank you, Jesus. That was all you. I know it's you. I'm going to proclaim this. I'm going to tell the story. Yeah. I'm going to claim it as your miracle. Yeah. And we, we washed it away a few years ago. My, my doctors thought that I had ovarian cancer and yeah, I went in, had surgeries and all this kind of stuff. And at the last surgery, um, the oncologist was there. They tested everything was benign. And once that was over, my husband and I, I mean, you, you take your sigh of relief, you lean back you start beating yourself up for worrying about it so much. It was weeks before it dawned on me or God whispered to me, Hey, did it ever occur to you that maybe I actually changed what was in there? Cause the doctors, they, you know, they were confident that I was very, very sick. And then 
I wasn't. And yeah, I look back on that now and I'm, I'm sad that I may have missed that that was a miracle in the time because I was just like, Oh, throw your hands up. It was just something natural, something we can wash away, but no, maybe God really did reach down and touch mm-hmm. me. Um, cause I've, I've, I have a friend right now um, who is going through cancer and that's what we pray for, for her is, yeah. you know, that God will do that, that God will heal in that way. And I believe he can do it. But when it comes to me, for some reason, I don't think he will. And mm. well, I mean, that's, that reveals my lack of faith. In, that's right. In I was way. just in my head. I was thinking ye of little faith. Those are the yes. words, not for you, for me, for all of us, all of us at times that yeah. we, oh, if we could only catch a glimpse of what God is really doing. Yeah. I mean, we would, we would be stunned. We would, we'd be silent and we'd be still. (laughs) That's right. Yes. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Uh, Well, anything else about this passage that stood out to you or that the Lord and you processed? Um, One thing I always, you know, like to talk about when it comes to this passage, because I love translation so much, I think it's really important for people to understand, um, the Red Sea and our Bibles, almost every single version out there. I can, I can give a couple that are different, um, say that Moses parted the Red Sea, but that's not actually what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says that he, he parted the Yom Suf. And most people will tell you that that means the sea of reeds. So I also tell people like, you know, if you're wondering if you have a good Bible translation, this is kind of a nice litmus test, you know, go to where it first occurs in Exodus 10 and see your Bible's going to translate it Red Sea, but make sure there's an asterisk there telling you to like, look down at the bottom, look at the footnote and make sure it's, it's telling you it's actually sea of reeds. You want to know that your, your translators are giving you that information. That's important. Um, well, so what a lot of, um, a lot of people who want to, who want to take the miracles out of the Bible, a lot of the people who want to say that God doesn't exist, they point to the parting of the Red Sea, they point to the plagues, and they want to completely give natural explanations to that. And what they hang that on oftentimes is this sea of reeds, um, because what they will say is it wasn't the Red Sea, because a sea of reeds is by definition a very shallow body of water. The papyrus reeds grow in the water, and they ha- but they have to grow above the water level. And so what they will say is a strong wind came through and, you know, turned a sea into a puddle basically. And they tromped through, this is the argument that people will make. Um, and I think it's a false argument because I'm not sure we understand actually what Yom Suf means. Mm -hmm. And there, the translation that makes the most sense to me is that maybe the word Suf actually comes to us in a different way. It comes to us instead of coming to, to us through Egyptian, it may actually come to us through Akkadian. And that actually what Yom Suf means is something along the lines of a sea without end. Mm. And so you see in this case, the Yom Suf would be a sea without end. The Red Sea would be a sea without end. Cause if you're standing on one side of it, you can't see the other side. Um, so but it could also be used to refer to the Mediterranean, same thing. Um, so I think that's actually what, what it means. And that doesn't take the miracle out of it. Um, it doesn't say Red Sea that that is not in the Hebrew. There are other places 
in the Bible where Red Sea is actually used, but it doesn't make the descriptive word wrong either. Yom Suf is describing a sea without end, not the actual you know body of water as we call it today. So the truth as usual is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's such an insightful nugget. Um, of even why the work that you're doing is so important to look at those original languages and really wonder and keep digging. I think a lot of times when we either see uh, contradictions or we see things that maybe don't seem to add up, we it's I, a call for us to take a deeper look. Um, Always. Always. And sometimes there's an answer that can come to us through archaeology or through textual study or through the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was huge for helping us understand the way the Bible developed over time. Um, So sometimes there are physical things that pop up, but sometimes there aren't. And those perceived contradictions or the places in the Bible where maybe it seems to us like something is missing, um, like like we were saying today, like we don't have the conversation. We don't know what Moses was actually saying to God. Why isn't that in there? And maybe that is something that we need to consider because I personally, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God and all of those contradictions and missing pieces, all of that. And so those places that confuse us, we need to lean into it more. Even if there is no perfect answer, I think it's an opportunity for us to dialogue with God. And that's really what this whole thing is about anyway, is getting to know God. He reveals himself in his word. And that's that and prayer are the best ways that we can communicate to know him and have a relationship with him. If he, you know, just up from, you know, on that proverbial cloud decided to, you know, send down an edict a couple of times a year telling us this is right and this is wrong and make it all very, very black and white, that would not invite us into an opportunity for relationship. Mm. And that's what he wants. So I like to think that all of the things that are messy about the Bible are absolutely by design. Yes. So good. And it, it does lead us then to having faith, right? Faith is the hope and the things that we actually can't see. We can't understand all of them. And as soon as we can understand God, we should be very concerned because he is God, (laughs) our creator. Right. (laughs) And we are, we are his created. And for us to fully understand him. Now the Bible reveals so much about him so that we can be in relationship. And there are character things that we know about him, that he's loving and, and faithful. And like, we even see so much in this passage about his character, that he cares for his people and that he will not let them fall. Um, Now, hard things are going to happen, right? I mean, even I'm thinking all the things that they've been through has been such a hard journey, Um, but he has them and he has a bigger purpose and a bigger plan, which is the whole story arc of scripture. So, yeah. And there's method in his to us madness, you know, the things that don't look right to us. There's a reason he does it that way. And some of those reasonings, we won't know you know, until we're with him, you know, that's it. <laughs> but we, we have to trust that there is his method there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that. So I'm curious, are there any other little nuggets that you want to pull out of this passage or share with us about some of the things that you've studied in the past or, um, just to help us even understand the passage more or the, the time that they're in more, um, this it's, it's, it's a funny passage because from an Israel perspective, we don't have a lot of archaeology for this. Um, there are people who will say that there are chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea. 
There are not. <laughs> what is at the bottom of the Red Sea is um, a shipwreck from the 1800s. And um, actually, one of the most famous images that you'll see bandied about out there is actually an image of like a coral covered um, of the thing you steer the ship with, like the wheel. You see yeah. that's down there. And and anyway, like some of the images that you see, it, it's actually of that. Um no, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's chariots are not at the bottom of the Red Sea. If they were, <laughs> I, the world of archaeology, I mean, would explode over it. It would be the equivalent of finding Noah's Ark, finding the Ark of the Covenant, you know, that it would be such a huge discovery. There would be no mystery surrounding it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want people to know that um, archaeology as a discipline I kind of have an original sin. And that is that it really developed in the late 1800s, early 1900s out of people essentially being grave robbers, mm-hmm. you know, people going into Egypt, going into Israel, Mesopotamia, all Turkey, all of these areas and looking for the Holy grail, you know, looking for items of great meaning. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think most people, you know, did it bad spiritedly or anything like that. But what they were doing was not archaeology. Um, it was, it was treasure hunting. Mm-hmm. That's what you see when, when you watch Indiana Jones, That's God bless I him. Thinking. I love him. <laughs> I, I mean, Indiana Jones, I, the, I had a, my ringtone on my phone was, was the Raiders March for years and years. That's amazing. <laughs> Every archaeologist loves Indiana Jones on some level. Um, but that's not archaeology. Archaeology today is incredibly scientific. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was last digging, I was last out in the field in 2019 and um, a man came in um, South, um, uh, South African and he was a microbiologist and he worked next to me for about a week or so taking these scrapings off of this kitchen floor that I was, that I was exposing. And he was going to take those scrapings back and study them. And based on the dead microbes that were there, he has been able to tell us what foods were prepared there, what, you know, what was cooked there. And this was middle bronze age. So actually we're talking about, about the time of Moses, um, actually, well, no, even before that. Um, and so that it's very scientific the way it's done now with, you know, just stripping layers off and keeping up with where we are in the calendar so that we can relate rooms and houses and everything together so that we can see what one city was doing at the same time. Another city was doing the way everything's done. If it's done, you know, well, and especially I I can only speak to Israel, but Israel has such a, hold over archaeology there. They had the Israel Antiquities Authority and they they're watching to make sure that everything is done right as much as they can. And so you can trust what comes out of the ground um, when it has been done in a proper excavation. When a guy goes scuba diving and brings you pictures of the bottom of something at the bottom of the Red Sea, that's not archaeology. Um, that that is a glorified fishing expedition. Right. Wow. <laughs> you know, so um, what is real archaeology? Um, it, we can trust and it does help us understand the text better when mm-hmm. we find things in the field that, you know, maybe there's a word in the Bible. It's not used anywhere else. We don't have a clue what it means. Well, then we go and we find that object. Um, that's that's really uh, illuminating. Mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, OK, so I want to go on a dig with you. And I know you're actually going on one. I probably can't come on this one, but tell us about it because I'm going to sign up at some point. You're going to see me. (laughs) Well, so I am actually going, my last book is The Red-Haired Archaeologist Digs Digs Israel. 
sorry, the next one will be Diggs Egypt. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Obviously, I'm thinking about that these days. Spoiler alert. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so Red Hair Archaeology Diggs Israel. And I structured the book around a two-week tour that I took with my parents after I dug in 2019. So I went over there, I dug, and then my family came over. They'd never been before. And we toured the country for two weeks. And that's how I structured the book. And so I am actually going to do a tour of Israel um, that is the real life version of the book. And so you can come and go most of the places that we went to, but then actually do some fun things that we didn't get to do. And one of those things actually is being an archaeologist for a day um, at this awesome site called Beit Guvreen, um, which is a, a Roman site. But, you know, you, you will get to experience a little bit of archaeology, but then what you really get to experience is the country of Israel. And what I hope people get from my book and get from the tour is an understanding of the ancient history, the modern history, and then Israel as it is today, because it all works together. This piece of land is, I think, unique in the world Mm. for the importance that it has had in history. There have always been people there. There have always been people warring over it because of its location. Um, And then of course it has, you know, all, all of the religious importance. Um, So I've, all of those things, all of those things work together. And so when people think about Israel, I, I hope to, you know, broaden their understanding of what that is beyond what we see on the news, beyond even what we read in the Bible and, you know, understand what life is, is like there. Um, mm-hmm. And they, mm-hmm. they are a very unique country, a very unique group of people because of what they have been through you know, historically, ancestrally. Yeah. Oh, so good. Okay. Well, I'm very sad because I have about 15 other questions I want to ask you and we have reached the end of our time. So you have a podcast and I'm going to link to that and also the tour and even just how to find you on Instagram and your website. So Amanda, thank you so much for making space to be with us. This was really a fun conversation. I love just hearing what the Lord led you to, and even just your insight from the work that you're doing. So thanks for sharing all that with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a wonderful experience. I'm glad. (laughs) Well, everyone, I also just want to thank you for joining me and Amanda again on so much more because we really do believe God has so much more to say to us and we're creating space to listen. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take or art to make or perhaps businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.